All right. So in Exodus chapter 20, we're going to begin reading at verse number one. And this is what, this is what God's word says. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So last week, we began talking about the law of God, and we talked about how believers should approach the law of God. Sometimes that's confusing because sometimes as Christians, we're, we're kind of taught, wrongly I might add, that the law has no more bearing on our lives uh, because we're under grace, we're under a new covenant, which is true, but the law is still very important. Uh, we talked more about that last week. You can listen online if you'd like. So over the next several weeks, what I'd like to do is I want to build on that foundation. And we're going to do that by taking a look at the Ten Commandments, which most of us are familiar with, at least in concept. And we're going to learn what they mean in the light of the gospel. What do the Ten Commandments have to say to us who are on this side of the cross? The Ten Commandments have enjoyed a really prominent place in American history. As, as kind of the foundation for our legal system, uh, because our legal system was based on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, and because of this, because of this place that the Ten Commandments have had in our history, as in American history, non-Jewish American history, the many state houses and courthouses across the, the land from sea to shining sea have had maybe a monument listing the, the ten divine laws of God, or maybe they've been chiseled into the stone of a wall in these buildings. And, and they do that to recognize that our laws that govern us have a divine origin. But you may have noticed or heard little items in the news that as our nation has become more and more secularized, that these granite reminders, many of them have been removed and often by court order, as the nation takes a different stand and, and does everything within its power to push God out, to push God and every reminder of our divine origin to the outer edges. And sometimes that causes us to like wonder how we should approach that. Do we get real militant and put a bunch of stuff on Facebook and Twitter about how wrong and evil that is? And, and, and I mean, that's one way to approach it. But what do we do? When society just outright rejects our Christian symbols, our Christian artifacts, what do we do when they do that? Do we just wave the white flag of surrender? Do we just give up and say, well, I guess, you know, the law has spoken, the government has spoken, it doesn't matter anymore? No, this is what I believe we do. I think that what we as believers in Jesus Christ do is we make doubly sure that when they remove the monument, that his word, his law, his precepts, his statutes are chiseled right here in our heart. For they can never be removed. No matter what the winds of culture do, you cannot take what is chiseled into my heart. I think that's how we approach it. After Israel was freed by God from their slavery in Egypt, they were led by God, I mentioned this last week, to a mountain called Sinai in the Arabian Desert. And, and God speaks to Moses, and this is what he says. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and they may also believe you forever. Now, now watch this. God is saying, I am going to show up, Moses. I'm going to do so visibly. You know, how many of you believe right now that Jesus Christ is here? How many of you, for you, it would be a whole different ball game if Jesus Christ in a physical manifestation walked through those doors back there? That would be a whole new ball game, wouldn't it? And, and God is telling Moses, I am coming and you will see me. And not only will you see me, a lot of people have claimed to see God, but he's saying everybody's going to see me and everyone's going to hear my voice. That would have made for an incredible Sunday morning service, I think. It says, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. I'm going to speak to you. The people were told that God would be arriving on the mountain in three days. They even exactly when he's going to show up. And that they would hear his voice. And in the meantime, they were supposed to consecrate themselves. That word just means to prepare themselves for God's arrival by setting themselves apart. God gave them a couple of instructions on how to do that. They were to wash their clothes and they were to abstain from sexual intercourse. They were also told to stay completely away from the mountain. They were not to try and climb it or even touch its outer edges, the outer boundary of it. They were to resist the temptation to kind of break through the boundary and see the face of God, see the unfiltered glory of God. They were not to do that. In, in fact, the penalty for doing that was to be death. No ifs, ands, or buts. The mountain would be so holy, so set apart by virtue of God's manifest presence that the offender was not even supposed to be apprehended. No one was supposed to chase after him and lay hands on him. In fact, the Bible clearly states that he was to be shot through with arrows or stoned from a distance. And this would apply to any human, any animal that dared to come near. Why? This was to impress upon the people that God, and this is a great lesson, great lesson for people in 2019, that God is not a God to be trifled with. God is is not a plaything. He's not the subject of our jokes. God is serious. God is holy. God is altogether different than we are. And he must be regarded by those who truly worship him as holy, as set apart. God was, he was communicating to his people that he was unspeakably holy. And he would not allow his glory to be in any way diminished or defiled. When the people heard a heavenly trumpet blast on the third day, then and only then could they gather at the foot of the mountain. So when the third day arrived, the Bible describes what was surely an awesome display. Now, try to imagine this if you can. Let me read you what, exactly what the Bible tells us about that. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Now, where did that trumpet blast come from? It came straight from the throne room of heaven, and everyone heard it, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, i got to pause right here. It amazes me sometimes how flippant people are about the presence of God. You know, and they'll, they'll talk about God in, in kind of ways that seem to diminish His glory, like, oh, you know, me and Jesus, He's my buddy, He's we're hanging out, all this stuff. And I want you to know that in every case, Old and New Testament, when people came into the presence of God as he manifested his presence, their, re their response was absolute fear. Now listen to me carefully. 
Their response was absolute fear. It happened with Moses and the people here in Exodus, and it happened all the way in the book of Revelation with John. When he saw the risen, glorified Lord, he fell to his face as a dead man. Why? Because God's glory is so much unlike anything that you and I have ever experienced. Anything that that our weakened human frame could ever handle. God is like that. I want us to have a big vision of a holy God. Because so much damage has been done by a weakened, kind of passive you know, silly vision of God. And this is what this is what the people are having this, I guess you could call it a privilege to see. So there's this loud trumpet blast. All the people in the camp tremble. Verse 17, Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The fire of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. It was in this kind of otherworldly, unnerving, spiritually charged atmosphere that the Ten Commandments were handed down to the people. And this is how it begins. And God spoke all these words, saying, I And the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Now listen, did you notice that God didn't say, I'm here, now here's what you got to do. He didn't say, I'm here, here's the rules. This is what he said. He said, I I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Before God tells the children of Israel what they must do, he reminds them of what he has done. That's the framework for the law. It's what I have done done. He's delivered them out of bondage into freedom. The way that they're going to enjoy that freedom, therefore, is not to return and not return to bondage, is, is to live according to his commands that he's about to. Here's a picture of God's amazing grace towards humanity. See, this is the exact same way it is with us. God always takes a step of grace, always takes a step of love towards us before we are ever able to respond to him. It always starts with God. Always. We read this verse last week in 1 John. He says, we love because he first loved us. We don't love so he'll love us. We love because he loved us first. It's his redeeming love for us that is motivating and enabling all of our love and obedience towards him if it's genuine. It's that redeeming love that makes me say, man, I want to please the Lord. Also, the laws and statutes and precepts of God are not to burden us. They're not to be strapped onto us like a a burden. They're to liberate us. Every command that will follow in these Ten Commandments is in no way meant to suppress human expression. God is not trying to cramp their style. You know what God's trying to do? He wants them to flourish. It's not about limiting their expression. It's about allowing them to flourish. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now let's be honest. Let's get real. And I'll throw myself in the mix. How many of you have ever looked at the commands of God and said, Whoa, no way, can't do it. Too big, too heavy, too strong. I'm, I'm, I'm incapable. Raise your hand. Be honest now. Come on. There's a lot of lying going on in the house of the Lord today. You look at them, but what, what is it that makes a difference? Well, 
human sin makes a huge difference. But when we approach the God as a God who, who has already redeemed us, as the one who called us out of the slavery of sin, then his, his law takes on a whole new dimension. It's no longer a burden to weigh me down. It's, it's, a, it's a life-giving force to liberate me. So I'm not enslaved to things that want to destroy me. This is good news, folks. Our irreparably damaged hearts always, always deceive us into thinking that our way is superior to God's. I have never once sinned thinking that God's way is better. Never once. Every transgression I have ever committed, it's because somehow either the devil convinced me or I convinced myself that what I was about to do was better than what God had told me to do. And and you want to know a a little statistic? I've kept really good records. I've been wrong on that decision 100% of the time. I, I, I've, I've, I've measured it. I've looked at it. I've, I've tried to find the exception. I have never, ever sinned to my own prosperity. Never once have I done that. No. God always gives us his law. He gives us things to, so that we can uh, benefit. He, his, our obedience, we always think that our obedience is going to deprive us of some joy or some benefit. But God always seeks to bless those he loves. He doesn't saddle burdensome laws on us. He, he gives us a blessing. He, this is true in the Old Testament. Uh, David wrote this in the, in the first verse of the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalms 119. He says this, blessed are those whose way is blameless. And he defines what that means. He says, who walk in the law of the Lord. You want to be blessed? You want to be blessed? Walk in the law of the Lord. For God to say that he is God and that he brought Israel out of the house of slavery infers a couple of important things that we must understand. First thing we must understand is that God, your God, is a rescuer. There is no power so great that God cannot deliver his people from it. There's nothing. This was true when Israel was in Egypt. It's true while Israel marches through the desert. It will be true when Israel occupies the land that's been promised to them. And guess what? It's true for you in Christ as well. It's true for you. God has rescued you from the sins of your dark past. His grace is sufficient for you today. And His mercy will one day carry you safely home to your promised land to be with Him forever. God is a rescuer. Those who have been thus rescued from God by God must not ever voluntarily Go back to the humiliation and slavery and bondage that we experienced in our sin. Rather, we have to live according to the liberating precepts of our Savior. We have not been saved and set free to sin. We've been saved and set free from sin. Next, the statement also infers not only that God is a rescuer, but that he's a redeemer. Now, some of you may not know the difference between those words because we use redeemer a lot when we're talking about rescue. But by saying that God is a redeemer, it's saying that in essence, God is now Israel's owner. He is the one holding the deeds to this nation called Israel. He's their owner. It's saying that by the Lord's power, they've been purchased from their slavery in Egypt so that, not period, You know, he didn't say, I rescued you from Egypt, period. They've been rescued from Egypt so that they can now belong to God and be servants of the Most High God. They've just changed ownership. The New Testament says this. It reemphasizes this. It says that you and I have been purchased 
by the blood of Christ. We, like Israel, so long ago, belong to God and not to ourselves. You know where most of the conflict in our spiritual life comes from? A misunderstanding of who owns us. I get in trouble because I think I own the deed. I don't own the deed. I signed it over to God in 1987. He owns me. And my question to you this morning is, does he own you? This means because he owns me and he has every right to me, it means that I have an obligation to live now as God requires because he owns the deed. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, he said, At one time you were darkness. This is an amazing passage. I've always wondered why it didn't say you were in darkness. No, it says you were darkness. In case you hadn't figured out, sin wasn't a problem coming against you. You were the problem coming against you. You were darkness. But watch. But now you are light in the Lord. Praise God. And so Paul tells us, if you're light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And and this is his last piece of advice. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. With a proper understanding of what God has done for them, relieving them of slavery, and how it obligates them to live for Him, God delivers the commandments to the Israelites. They're divided, we talked about this last week, into two general categories consisting of four that deal with proper human relationship to God and six that deal with proper human relationship to other people. And the first of these commandments, the very first one that God hands to his people is this. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a powerful departure from what the Israelites had observed in Egypt. In Egypt, there were carved deities on every single corner there were legends that had existed for years of god the god's dealings with man there there have been elaborate ceremonies devised describing how to appease these gods in order to obtain a harvest or to bear children etc etc but now standing at the foot of the mountain these people are being told that yahweh their god is not part of a pantheon of greater, lesser, or even equal gods, each vying for a portion of their adoration, their worship is to be exclusive to Yahweh alone. Not a whole bunch of them, there's just one. They they won't have to have a variety of different gods with each having different domains like weather or fertility or war. Instead, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, the great I Am, Yahweh will be their only provider he'll be their only defender and because of that he's going to be the recipient of all of their worship the egyptians god had to be understood you had to figure him out and and then they had to be appeased by ceremonies which resulted i'm sure in a sense of a lot of trial and error but but israel's god would be known and he would be related to in a relationship of faith and dependence and obedience and mutual love The demand for exclusive worship also taught the people a very, very important lesson about their God. See, God could rightfully require their singular allegiance because he was the only God. See, he wasn't competing with those false gods of Egypt. Those false gods in Egypt were exactly that, false. 
Look at this. He, he says that all other gods that they had known were no gods at all. They were merely counterfeits. And he reemphasizes this in Isaiah chapter 45. He says, I am the Lord. Now watch. And there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. May seem shocking. This isn't a popular truth today. You are told constantly through the media, through your conversations with your friends and coworkers, maybe even your family, that every religion is just as valid as the next. But I think we should let God speak for himself. Don't you? He says, I'm the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no other. It's probably safe to assume that no one here, looking around the room, probably safe to assume that no one here is making sacrifices to carve images in pagan temples. If you are, raise your hand and we will... We'll do something. I don't know. I'll let Daryl figure it out. But we'll do something if that's what you're doing in your life right now. If you and your spouse are trying to have a baby, you probably haven't called out to some fertility god from Babylon or Assyria or Egypt. If your lawn is turning yellow, I doubt seriously that you've done some rain dance to a rain god to satisfy them. Probably thought about it in West Texas, but I'm hoping you haven't done it. So if that is true, if if you guys aren't dabbling in paganism, if that's true, then what good does this commandment even do? What does, why does it even matter to us? Of course there's only one God and he deserves all our worship. It's because of this. And if you don't only hear one thing that I say this morning, hear this. It's because for you and I, a God is not defined by outward religious ceremonies and observance. That's not how we define a God. We define a God by inward dependence, which produces evidence of allegiance. Let me say that again. For us, a God is not defined by outward religious ceremonies and observances, but by inward dependence that, and evidence of, of allegiance that that produces. It's important to ask ourselves all the time, not to whom have I publicly pledged my allegiance? That's not the question to ask. The question we ask ourselves as believers is, in whom or in what do I inwardly trust? See, because what I've found is the answers to those two questions can be very, very different. You know what the hardest thing about being a pastor in Lubbock, Texas is? There's no non-Christians here. Now, you might think, well, of course there is. Well, go, go try to find one. Because everyone you talk to in every store, every street corner, every house, every school, every building... Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I went to Second First Baptist of the Methodist, whatever, for the, I was baptized, at whatever, you know. And so everybody is a Christian in their minds. So they've made a public declaration. But if you looked at their lives really close, you might find that their inward dependence is completely lying somewhere else. We're often guilty of not pondering the answer to these questions because we've all, we all, we have all of our, confidence all of it is in some declaration we may have made years ago well i went to kids camp or youth camp when i was eight years old and bowed my knee and so ta-da all's better even though everything in our lives may contradict that declaration daily so how do we consider where our inward trust is let me let me help you consider that just for a second answer these questions to yourself as honestly as you can. Just answer them. Be honest. No one's going to hear you. Answer them within yourself. Just between you and Jesus. We're going to find out where our inward trust really is. If you 
lost your job today. You lost your status, something you achieved that you're proud of. You lost every penny of your wealth, every bit of it. And that all happened today in a moment of time. How would your world be impacted? How would your faith be impacted? What would your attitude be? Would you be bitter? Would you be depressed? Would you be angry? Would you be determined to win it back no matter what? Let's go a little deeper. If your most valued relationship, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your child, your closest friend were suddenly gone through death, or through abandonment, or through some other circumstance, how would you cope? Can you, sitting there, imagine life without them? What if you find out tomorrow that your very own body is riddled with cancer? And and more than that, you find out that you have six short months to live. What if you're a teenager or a college student and you find this out? What would you say that you've lost as a result of that news. Now, I admit, I admit, I'm not trying to manipulate you. I admit that these are ultimate questions. They're tragic questions of a desperate nature. And they all involve loss to help us define who or what our God really is. So let me also take a different approach. I want you to think about your actual life, not your hypothetical life, but your actual life last week. What was required last week to make you happy? What was required last week to absolutely wreck you? What made you secure? What made you thankful? What was it that absolutely shook your world and why did it do so? What does it take for you to say, I am satisfied? Who has the ability to say something or who said something to make you feel affirmed? Who has the ability to say something or do something to make you feel completely rejected? See, all of these questions, if we have the guts to face them honestly and answer them, they help us to know where our dependence really lies. Let me just make this real clear. All of us, every one of us, myself absolutely included, fight for the exclusivity of God on all fronts every single day. See, Christians... Contrary to some popular opinion, we don't reach some state of nirvana, you know, sitting in the lotus position where we declaratively stand with God once. You know, I did this and so business is settled and I never need to return to him again. Like John saying this morning, say, let me be broken. I've gotten so proud. Just let me be broken, Lord. We never get to that point where everything just all seems to line up for us. See, Jesus has to occupy the only throne that our hearts have with every choice, every decision, with every love. Jesus must return to the Every choice I make is a choice between whether God is going to inhabit all of the authority of my life or something else. And this is not, don't misunderstand me, this is a grace church and a grace preacher and a grace message. This is not what I'm not talking about is work salvation, that one day Jesus can save you and the next day he can't. Not what I'm saying. This is not about work salvation. See, we are not saved by holding on to Jesus, but we are saved because Jesus is holding on to us. That's why we're saved. So what I'm talking about, with the distinction that I'm making here, what I'm talking about is lordship. And I'm defining lordship as God's 
supreme power, God's supreme rule. I'm asking it to you in the form of a question. Who is in charge of your life? Not who you have said, but who are you demonstrating that is in charge of your life? Lordship and are living in submission to and dependence upon it. This is something that believers in Christ fight for every single day. Every day. The gospel cannot be separated from the fight for lordship. While we affirm, and I loudly so, that a person is saved by the grace of Jesus working in us, evidence of a life transformed by the gospel is found in increasing recognition and submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and having no other gods, no other types of gods before him. Every day we cry out, God, be my everything. Jesus noted the the frequent hypocrisy that lives in all of us when he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Who is in charge? Not who you're calling Lord, not who you're singing loudly in the first 20 minutes of the service. Who are you living as the Lord of your life? Genuine faith in Christ not only allows us to grow in our determination and ability to exclusively surrender to Christ's lordship. But here's the grace. It opens our eyes to see the beauty of that lordship. See, it's not, this is not a message to say, ah, Jesus isn't lord of everything here. That's not what I'm trying to do. I don't want you to leave here feeling bad. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to see how beautiful the lordship of Jesus Christ is. And because of that, to desire it above everything else. When I place my trust in Jesus, I can clearly see what an amazing blessing it is to have the only one God who has clearly communicated everything in his word, what he desires. That's an awesome privilege, isn't it? I love having one God. I love it. I don't have to find one God among many that are out there who will listen to me or take care of me. On the contrary, the one and only God has found me. I don't have to find him. He found me. I could never have found him. He found me. There's two ways to look at the words, you shall have no other gods before me. Most of us take that to mean you who are my people are prohibited from worshiping any other so-called gods. And if that's your interpretation, without a doubt, that would be the proper interpretation of the meaning of the text. But try to read it provisionally as well. You shall have no other God. Shall have no other God. What I'm saying is, could God also be saying to us, no intermediary God has been providing for you because none exists and you don't need one. I like that. God is saying, you belong to me and no one is going to stand between us. I have delegated no one to act on my behalf. You shall have no other gods before me. Last week I read Jeremiah 33, 31. Let's read it again and paying close attention this time to the final words. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Now watch. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This phrase, it shouts a personal interest and a desire for deep relationship on the part of God. He bars us from pursuing satisfaction in or help from other gods, not because he's needy, or insecure, but because he greatly loves us and wants the best for us, his people, his children. That's why he's saying, hey, I'm not going to be the only God for you because I want the best for you. There's no parent here that would ignore the fact that their child was going out of the house to go try methamphetamines. 
or to play Russian roulette with their buddies. They would quickly and decisively intervene in order to protect their child's well-being. Amen? But if God turned a blind eye to all our false deities of materialism and that pride that constantly tries to seduce us, what kind of father would he be? There's no benefit to be had in the pursuit or worship of such things. There's only a promise of certain disappointment. And if we ignore it long enough, certain destruction. But we also have to consider another couple words in that scripture. You shall have no other gods before me. See, before me doesn't just mean in preference to me. Before me can also be understood to mean in my presence or in my view. It's hard to come up with an analogy for this, but imagine, if you will, a very good husband, great husband. He's been good to his wife. He's always spoken kind and encouraging words to her, provided for you, and he's always been impeccably faithful. Now imagine if he were to find that his wife were sleeping with another man, not in some seedy hotel somewhere, but in their own house, in their own bed. See, this comes close to what it means to have other gods before the one true God. They may be desires or attitudes or habits or possessions or relationships or anything, but never be so arrogant as to imagine that your devotion to such things is hidden from the Lord. Never imagine that. Or that he even overlooks it or that he doesn't care. God describes himself several times in the Bible as a jealous God. He will not tolerate divided hearts. That's not to say, listen carefully, it's not to say that anyone's heart is entirely and at all times devoted to God. But it does mean that as believers, our priority is to constantly press past the voices and the impulses that would pull us away and say, no, I will have no other God but God alone. This is important because most of us, I've said this three times now, myself included, have a tendency to categorize our lives. You know what I'm saying that when I say categorize our lives? We have categories for what we think is God stuff. Going to church, morning devotions, prayer, Bible reading. That's God stuff. That goes in this box over here. And then we have a, a box for non-God stuff. You know, our work, school, hobbies, things like that. But listen carefully. This is not how the Bible teaches us to view our relationship with God. Did you know that? not at all how, how the Bible teaches us with all these little categories, and this is God's, and this is not God's, and all that. Colossians 3.23 says this, Whatever you do, everybody say, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Whatever you do for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. How are we serving Christ? Well, with whatever you do. That's the ideal. We're serving the Lord Christ with whatever we do. Work, school, family, church, hobbies, your speech, your thoughts, the way you relate to your husband, the way you relate to your wife, the way that parents relate to their children, children to the parents. With all of it, whatever you do, you are serving the Lord Christ. Everything, everything is an offering. Everything is intended to be an offering. Approaching life this way radically shifts us from self-centered, self-serving, self-saving people into people who are constantly growing toward unfiltered worship. Unfiltered worship where there's absolutely nothing between you and the object of your worship. 
How many of you long to worship? Man, I hate it when I'm sitting right there and this band is just bringing it. And I'm sitting there worried about something. Some of the dumbest things. I've got way too much pride to admit to you some of the things I worry about in that seat right there. Way too much pride. But I do it. And so there's these other little gods that are occupying the throne of my heart. And my worship is filtered through those gods. What a great thing it would be if I could just eject those gods entirely and say, now my worship is going to be unfiltered. Me and you, Jesus. Me and you. Today we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to ask the Lord if there are other gods who've tried to take a piece or a place on the throne of our heart, which is reserved for the one and only God. And as he points out, and I want you to give him the opportunity to point some things out, as he points things out to you that may need your attention, remember, as I said earlier, that you and I, if we believe in Jesus Christ, are people of grace. We're not people of law anymore. We're people of grace. And so any obedience that we offer comes from love and not fear. Amen? So I want you to do this. Everybody bow your heads. Everybody close your eyes. Nothing mystical about this. I just want you alone with Jesus right now. So please do that, everybody. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you both the power and the beauty of rejecting every pretender to the throne of your heart. Every single one. And in a moment when you partake of these elements, this bread and this cup, I want you to remember that you and I are just like ancient Israel in this regard. We have been rescued from the Egypt of sin at the cross. We're no longer slaving under a law that we can't keep. We've actually been given rest. We've been given rest in Jesus. But I also ask you to remember that you've been redeemed by the broken body and the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus. We are no longer our own. No, I said it before, I'll say it again. No one who is a true believer in Jesus Christ can claim any right or title to their own life. We're no longer our own. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, he said, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know how we glorify him? By obeying him. Because we've been bought, we can now surrender our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirit in worship to the one true God. And the demand that we will have no other gods before him is his right, but it's also our great privilege. Who would want to counterfeit if you could have the real deal? My wife would not be interested in a cubic zirconium if she knew that the alternative was a diamond. Jesus has redeemed us for himself. And we couldn't be better off. So I'm going to ask our communion workers to come. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you to come to the table. I'm going to ask many of you, even though I I believe with all my heart you're believers, I'm going to ask many of you to return to the Lord this morning. I'm going to ask you to repent of lesser allegiances. And I'm going to ask you to confess before the Lord that He is your God and there is no room for any other. Would you stand with me? I'm going to 
to ask you again to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want you to just, we're just going to be silent for a few seconds. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to quickly work in you and identify other gods that may be seated on the throne of your heart right now. Everybody do that. Have the guts to do it. When the Holy Spirit shows you things, don't argue with Him. Just acknowledge that what He's saying is true. step is to acknowledge those things confess them back to the Lord step is for you and I to repent. And repentance, as I've said so many, many times, is not groveling. It's not telling Jesus what a worm you are. To repent is to look away from the thing that you thought was so great to the one who truly is great. And acknowledge that all you need is him. That you want that unfiltered worship that I talked about earlier. king on the throne of their heart without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so now that you have acknowledged, you've repented, you've confessed back to the Lord, I want you to just boldly, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. So I want you to just take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to give you the power to walk under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ and to quickly recognize when a usurper to the throne of your heart is sitting there. Go ahead, ask him. He will not tell you no if you ask him for the power to do that. He's promised to be a very present help in time of need. You are not on your own in this fight. The Holy Spirit is is here. He's with you right now to help you.
who's ready to celebrate our redemption in Jesus Christ this morning? Come on. Who's ready to celebrate our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And all the redeemed of the Lord said, Amen. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that rescued us. We thank you for the broken body and the spilled blood that redeemed us. And Lord, we declare joyfully and loudly, we are yours this morning, Lord God. We belong to God. There is no other authority in all of the universe, in heaven or hell, that has authority over our lives. We have given it completely to you, O God. And you have made us new. You have filled us with your spirit. You are going to cause us by the law written on our hearts to walk in your ways. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. God, we are so grateful for your sacrifice. Thank you for redeeming us, Lord. We shall have no other gods before you. In Jesus' name, amen.